0: This is David Duncan, author of The Secret Lives of Customers, a detective story about solving the mystery of customer behavior. And you're listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast,
1: helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by forbes and linkedin amongst others don't worry about taking notes you can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com and since i get to read every book featured on the show if i can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource i know of for whatever challenge you're facing send me a linkedin connection invite with a message that you're a listener and i will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction my name again is douglas Burdett. this episode is sponsored by By marketing architects, creators of the all inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome David Scott Duncan to talk about his book, The Secret Lives of Customers, a detective story about solving the mystery of customer behavior, published by Public Affairs. David Scott Duncan is a Managing Director at the Strategy and Innovation Consultancy InnoSite, where he works with leaders to create customer-centric teams, strategies, and organizations. He is a leading authority on the theory and application of jobs to be done, with extensive experience conducting market investigations around the world. David is the co-author of two previous books, including the Wall Street Journal bestseller Competing Against Luck, the Story of Innovation and Customer Choice, written with the late Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen. Prior to joining Insight, he worked as a consultant at McKinsey & Company, earned a PhD in physics from Harvard University.
0: Hello, harvard yo.
1: And an undergraduate degree in philosophy from Duke University. And interesting fact, he is the heir to the Dunkin' Donuts fortune. David, congratulations on the secret lives of customers and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thanks, Douglas. Great to be here. I really appreciate it.
1: Now, I'm, I'm confused, though, because your name is spelled different from Duncan. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts. It's D-U-N-C-A-N. Was that, was that a, like a decision you all made from a branding standpoint?
0: Yeah, it was a branding decision. And, you know, sometimes if I want to distance myself a little bit from the Dunkin' Donuts fortune, uh, it, it's helpful to have a slightly differently spelled name.
1: Okay, great, great. So you went to Duke, and uh, you are the third author the third Blue Devil that I've interviewed. I've interviewed uh, Drew Neiser and then Stephen Pressfield for the 400th episode. And this is really special to me, as uh, some listeners may know, because my mother, Antoinette Burdett, is a graduate of Duke University. She graduated in 1944 and was the first woman to earn a varsity letter at Duke. And then one of my brothers went there. And uh, so naturally, he was uh, her Favorite son, I'm kidding. She loved all of us, but I think if she met you, she would uh, really like you, David.
0: Uh, well, that's that's great to hear.
1: So, you have a PhD in physics from Harvard, and I guess aside from an interest in physics, were you thinking about becoming a, a physics professor at some point?
0: Yeah, when I went to graduate school, uh, I was pretty open-minded about what I might do when I was done, uh, and just thought it was a great opportunity to get deep into a subject that I was really interested in. And as I was uh, going through the graduate school, I guess I came to the realization that loving physics and loving being a physicist are two different things. (laughs) The the career path uh, probably wasn't for me. Uh, My interests have always been pretty broad, and and they went in the direction of business. And uh, I found myself increasingly reading about topics in the quote-unquote real world. Um, Took a couple courses in the business school and... uh, uh, decided I wanted to branch out uh, into the into industry. Ended up uh, uh, getting a job at at McKinsey, uh, which I'd never heard of. Going into graduate school, but it uh, <laughs> seemed like a good way to you know broaden my resume and and get some business exposure, and and that was uh, my transition into the business world.
1: Interesting, interesting. Well, I don't know of uh, anyone who's studied philosophy or physics who's in. An- Uh, academic slouch. So, good on you. So, I am so glad you contacted me a while back and sent me uh, not just one copy of your book, but two. That's right, listener. One of you is going to be awarded a copy of this book. Now, uh, we'll have to see, but if you share the interview on LinkedIn or if I see that you're reaching out to the author to thank him for being a guest on the show, that'll help. Uh, Or if you're a Duke grad, I know there's some Duke grads who listen, but hey, enough about enough about the Duke thing, but I, I am glad you sent me a copy of the book, it, and it is a truly exceptional book, and we're going to talk about why in a minute, but also, as we record this, this is a special day for me, because it's your birthday. We're going to party like it's your birthday. That's right. It's my birthday. And I don't think I've ever recorded uh, an episode on my birthday. So, happy birthday to me. And uh, just a uh, briefly about me because I want this to be about my guest and and uh, the, the book he's written. I was born on Bruce Springsteen's 10th birthday. That's how I can always remember how old I am. But I was I was born on his 10th birthday and he later wrote a song about me. Born in the USA. And that one did so well. He actually uh So he wrote two songs about my birthday, and I appreciate that. And um, he actually goes around telling everyone that he was born on the same birthday as me. But you know what's interesting, uh, David, is I was born on the same day as the uh, actor uh, Jason Alexander, who was a cast member in the long-running American yeah. TV show Seinfeld, yeah. and uh, he played a, a degenerate named George Costanza. I mean, what are- not to be so funny all the time. That's all I'm asking. This woman thinks I'm very funny and now you're going to be funny so what am I going to be? I'm going to be a short, bald guy with glasses who suddenly doesn't seem so funny. So, because this uh, is my birthday, I have to let you know I I went to Starbucks because you get a free cup of coffee on mm-hmm. your birthday at Starbucks if you have their app. All these
0: years, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you know, I'm all about uh, providing value to the listener and the guest. So uh, if you if you if you have the Starbucks yeah. app, you know, a lot of you can probably just stop yeah. listening now because, no, I'm kidding. But you get a free cup of coffee. So since it was free, I went in and, and I said I'd like a large, I'm not kidding here, a large triple shot caramel macchiato. And I know I say that because it sounds like I can speak Starbucks, but I had no idea what I was ordering, but somebody told me to get that. So I am really, really fired up. So for this episode, David, I'm gonna read the entire book really fast, and then we're gonna have a four-hour discussion about it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not gonna do that. But as we start talking about the book, you're gonna understand the significance of why I went to get coffee today. So I posted a picture of the book on LinkedIn and this is a pretty well-known book based on the enormous response I got. I think you, you, the book's been out for a year or so? Uh,
0: yeah, just about a year.
1: And uh, a lot of folks had read it, and they were very excited to, uh, to see that you were going to be on the podcast. And like I can say, I just loved it. I want to read an excerpt from the beginning, and then uh, we'll get into it from page one. If you want to understand customers, start by thinking like a detective. I've long believed the art of understanding what customers want and why they do what they do has much in common with how a detective goes about solving a mystery. Customers are endlessly surprising, often acting in ways that don't seem to make sense and presenting, for a time at least, a mystery to be solved. A market mystery, if you will. When this happens, the best response is to look around for clues about what's going on by talking to people, observing them, gathering data, identifying patterns, and drawing out insights that suggest the right next step, just like a detective. Solid market detective skills are more needed than ever, and not just by people in specialized research departments. The maxim, the customer is boss, has become only more urgent as the digital revolution, social media, expanding choices, and 24-7 connectivity have empowered consumers and heightened their expectations for any experience with a product, company, or brand, this means nearly everyone, including those working in executive leadership, marketing, product development, sales, customer service, and even departments such as HR or finance, needs to be constantly attuned to what customers want today and in the future. What's surprising, then, is the absence of an effective approach to cracking market mysteries that anyone can learn and apply in a wide variety of situations. To be sure, powerful methods exist within the confines of market research or increasingly data science departments, but they are too specialized to be useful to most people working in the business world. More fundamentally, the result is often a deluge of data and analysis that, however sophisticated it may appear, falls short of the insights needed to truly improve customer lives. My goal with The Secret Lives of Customers is to fill this gap by teaching a language, method, and mindset that equips anyone to understand the customers they serve or want to serve. At its heart is the simple but profound idea that what drives customer behavior is the existence of important, unsatisfied jobs that they are looking to get done. When these jobs arise, people look around for the best products, services, or experiences to hire to solve for them. Therefore, the top priority of any aspiring market detective should be learning how to discover, understand, and solve for these jobs. And then you go on to write, my hope is that you'll find this book both useful and enjoyable whether you work through it individually or with a team. And I hope it helps you to solve your own market mysteries, whatever they may be. So as I mentioned before, this book is exceptionally well-written, and I uh, applaud you for that. And I think it was a very – it must have been a very difficult book to write. Most of the book is a detective mystery about a business, which we'll we'll talk about in a minute here. And then the very end, like the, the very last section, explains the, the tools and methods and the mindset uh, that the characters use. So it's like a – uh, a director's cut <laughs> where you explain exactly what the characters did and it's i best i can recall there've only been two other books out of over 400 that use a fictional story on the, on the marketing book podcast. Now, David, I have to say this has to be one of the most enjoyable books I've read for the marketing book podcast and I love reading these books and they're all really for the almost without exception really really good. But let me give you a concrete example of how good this book is. So on s- last Sunday morning I was watching some NFL pregame shows and I uh, you know I muted the TV and picked up the book and and started reading it. <laughs> I didn't put the book down until I was 120 pages in. <laughs> that has never happened before. I couldn't stop reading. I just want you to know that that is an indication of how compelling your writing was to this this knucklehead. So, because you have a physics degree, I do want to talk about some math. So, the and I and I and I did the math here. Okay. The first 82.7% of the book, first 83%, okay, is the mystery, right? And that's what just I, I couldn't put it down because I wanted to find out what happened. And then the last 17% explains the tools and the things that we're going to talk about. And what I would propose is that we if possible, kind of reverse the percentage and talk, you know, a little more briefly about the story, because I don't want to give it all away. After all, it is a mystery, and it has a big ending. But instead, we might spend a little bit more time talking about some of the tools that the characters use that you outline uh, very clearly at the at the end of your book. Does that sound okay?
0: Uh, yeah, that sounds great. And thank you so much for your very kind words. That, that means a lot to me. I appreciate it.
1: So before we get started on the story, I just have to ask one personal question. Are you a Sherlock Holmes fan? And I meant (laughs) you, my dear Watson.
0: I am. Yeah, I am. And more broadly, I'm I'm a fan of of mystery books uh, in general. And as I was uh, just brainstorming a plot premise for for a book like this, I I hit on this idea of uh, trying to create a mystery. And and that's that's the path I ended up going down.
1: Right. Because I noticed uh, the main character is named Alex Baker, which brought to mind Baker Street.
0: Yep, that was a deliberate reference. Yes, make up the names of a lot of name, uh, a lot of uh, characters, and uh, uh, that that was one source. Well, I was
1: thinking you you buried a lot of uh, you put a lot of little Easter eggs out there uh, for folks, and that was the one that I caught. And then I started looking, thinking, all right, what else did he do here? (laughs) Anyway, I can remember in junior high, I read a whole lot of Sherlock Holmes and, and enjoyed it, which may be why I enjoyed this book so much. So let's. Talk about the story briefly. Let's talk about the setting and, and and the characters, and you know, kind of an overview of the plot. And perhaps we could start with uh, why me going to a coffee shop today was uh, significant.
0: Sure. Well, the the whole uh, you know premise of the book uh, and and the focus of the book is trying to teach you know anybody really not a not necessarily specialists, but anybody who works in the in the business world. Uh, a way that they can understand customers and teach them what they need to know to be able to do that. And uh, I decided I wanted to do it as a kind of fictional story. That was inspired by uh, the books of Patrick Lencioni, in particular, a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. You know, he's he's written books that have sold millions of copies that have a similar format, right? They're all written about 80% as a fictional story that has a compelling plot and kind of carries you along and teaches whatever concepts or frameworks he's trying to teach through the story and then he steps out of the story at the end and and uh, you know, uh, uh, talks about the ideas directly so i I grabbed onto that format. I remember reading that book The five dysfunctions of a team uh, many years ago and just had a lot of fun reading it and and I learned a lot and I thought. Given the broad applicability or the audience of of the topic of this book, that would be a fun thing to try. So, uh, it the, the 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 plot basically centers around this this fictitious company, which is a chain of of coffee shops. They're the Coffee Connection uh, that you were alluding to early earlier, that has grown rapidly over the previous decade. They're on the cusp at the beginning of the story of of doing an IPO and raising funding to go national. And just at around that time, when the story starts, they start to lose a lot of customers, including some of their most loyal customers. And and that's the mystery that uh, they urgently need to solve is why is that happening? How can we reverse that and not jeopardize our our IPO? And they hire uh, a kind of unconventional uh, market researcher who bills himself as a market detective who comes in and helps to crack market mysteries through market investigations and and the plot uh, essentially describes how he does that uh, uh over the course of the story
1: and the company is called taza and you could explain the significance of that name for those of us who don 't speak italian
0: uh yes, and i'm one of those people, but th- there is an Italian connection uh, one of the people that doesn 't speak italian <laughs> there's a, there's a there's an Italian uh kind of theme throughout as well a connection to it so taza means cup uh, in italian and uh, again um there there are a lot of uh naming puzzles you have to figure out when you 're writing a oh
1: well a now i 'm going to have to read about. it again
0: <laughs> that was the uh that was one of the uh, choices I made uh, for the fictitious company
1: right and it was started by kate Forrest
0: yes uh so she has a she has a leadership team and and um that uh play various roles and you know the uh, the the, the main characters are, you know, Kate, the, the leader of the business who's looking to turn things around, this uh, market detective character, his name's Alex Baker, and then he has a sidekick, a kind of a Watson character that goes along with him through the um, through the plot, who is a young kind of computer data analytics, mathematics genius. Um, Michigan grad. Michigan grad, and <laughs> they, they they crack the case together and... I kind of thought that it would be fun to have two people going through the, 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 the investigation together, one who represents more of the uh, kind of advanced, modern kind of data analytic techniques around marketing and understanding customers, and one who um, had had this more um, qualitative, uh, uh, more market detective orientation and showing how the two of them together uh, crack the case through using their their complementary skills and areas of expertise.
1: TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why... Marketing architects flipped the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called... All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Now, tell us about Rob Butler <laughs> I didn't. I didn't like him.
0: Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. So I've never written a, a fictional story before. Really? And, um, no. But I, I read a lot of fiction, and I always have. It's it's my preferred. I'd say I prefer it over nonfiction. Um, and so when I thought about doing this, I read a couple books about how to write fiction, um, including one in particular about how to how to write a mystery, like a, a genre. Mystery novel, and and when you do that, one of the things you have to figure out first is well, who's the villain, right? Who's the antagonist? And it said, you know, in a in the case of a conventional mystery, you it always has to be a murderer. So there has to have been a murder committed, and the person has to be, you know, evil. And and uh, it didn't feel like that extreme. Uh, would would fly in a in a sort of business oriented book. I don't know. I think there's a lot so of shady also. marketers. Uh... <laughs> yeah, maybe I don't know, but I didn't want to take it. But but there had to be some sort of antagonist, that, yes. uh, to create conflict. Yeah, right? the so villain kind of drive drive the story forward. And he's not so much a villain as he is, um, uh, you know, a good guy who represents a more traditional approach to marketing that um, that I was trying to contrast with. The, the approach the jobs to be done approach that the market detective and and his uh, uh partner uh, are are illustrating and and teaching through the course of the of the plot so he he's kind of the foil that uh, that that they're they're contrasting with
1: yeah well you know I guess I as a reader I read a lot into it and I didn't like him because I think I've met people like him, and the thing I had a problem with was that he didn't know what he didn't know. In other words, from my reading, there seemed to be very little humility, and also he had a little bit of an attitude, like he had come from a large beverage company, and he was going to kind of show these rubes how it's done.
0: Yeah, that, that's right. And, and I, you know, I intentionally gave him some some traits to make him maybe less likable than some of the other characters. And, <laughs> but but he, I still think he's not a bad person.
1: No, he's not. <laughs> and we're not going to tell you what happens to him. Yeah. Um, Non-spoiler alert, there are no murders in this uh, that's particular— true. That's yes. the only thing I'm going to tell you folks uh, about what happens. But it just seemed like—anyway, um, that, that, that got my, my interest, and then there's a, the head barista who plays a big role, and uh, the other folks. So talk about the—I uh, guess the reason I, I mentioned this about Rob. to use a Seinfeld joke, it's like, hello, Newman. That's kind of how I felt about uh, Rob Butler. But the Ptolemy trap, talk about that. I I love that.
0: Yeah, so the the heart of the the methodology and the the approach that the book teaches uh, is this idea of of jobs to be done, customer jobs to be done, and I'm I'm sure, given your audience, a lot of people are familiar with that idea uh, to some extent. But
1: well, there's always a first time yeah. listener, so let's not assume.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll I'll just explain a little <laughs> yeah. bit of that, and then yeah, and please, then, and then how that and then how that relates to to your question about the Ptolemy trap. So. Uh, you know, jobs to be done is, it's a, a, a sim- at its heart, it's a simple model for understanding why customers do what they do or why people do what they do. Why do we, in particular, pull some products and services into our lives and adapt our lives, which always takes energy to do that, uh, and reject others? And, and just the, let me interrupt.
1: Yeah. Uh, whenever I hear jobs to be done, the only person I think of is Clayton Christensen.
0: Uh, yes uh that's probably the true of of many people there there certainly are are other people that have been instrumental in in developing the theory over the years and that uh, you know are quite expert in it around there but clay you know, just given uh a how famous he was uh and um renowned you know for the disruptive innovation model and the fact that he loved this idea of jobs to be done and and he once told me he thought it was even more important than the idea of disruptive innovation, which is his, you know, the model that he he introduced to the world uh, with his book *The Innovator's Dilemma*. You know, he, he talked about it all the time, and and he if if people Google uh, Clayton Christian and milkshake, they'll, yes. <laughs> they'll find a, a famous video of him uh, telling the milkshake story, which is a beautiful story of that illustrates this idea of jobs to be done. But the basic notion is that. What drives people to purchase things um, are not products or services in and of themselves, but rather it's the existence of important, unsatisfied problems or jobs that we want to get done in our lives. And uh, and it's you know it's not the, the the product that pulls me in like a magnet, but rather some job pops up in my life, and when that happens, I look around for solutions to hire. So we use jobs as a kind of a metaphor. Uh, to solve for those jobs, and uh, you know, a job can be a a problem that you want to solve. It could be a big problem or a small problem, like I want to repair my car or soothe my sore throat. Or it can be a goal you want to accomplish, like running a marathon or or getting into college. And and it's it's these jobs that that drive that motivate us to look for things to to hire to perform those jobs. And and so that that gives you a way to understand the causality behind why people are, might look for something and embrace or reject a new solution so the 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 assumption underlying this this theory of jobs to be done is that if you're a marketer if you're a product developer if you're a strategist your primary focus should be understanding what jobs people are trying to get done and then you know understanding them at a deep enough level that you can develop solutions um, that will solve them in a more compelling way than the competition, and that that is in contrast. So, so that that way of thinking about the world, you know, I call that a job-centric view of the world. Um, that's in contrast to, uh, a, a, say, a product-centric view of the world, where you you, if you're a marketer, product developer, strategist, you you frame what you're uh, what you're trying to do as sell more of these products that I sell. And um, that that kind of puts it, you know. And I that, that that's kind of a um, uh, what's the yeah a Ptolemaic way of thinking about um, the 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 laws of the universe of business and customers, yeah. in the sense that you know Ptolemy was the astronomer who had this Earth-centric view of the solar system um, and thought that you know everything revolves around the Earth. The Earth is at the center of the world. <laughs> uh, which was replaced by the copernican view later that um you know it's that's not uh the case we we in fact are a little node in the, in in this uh solar system we we're not quite
1: as significant
0: <laughs> uh, we're not as significant as we thought and yeah. and um you know that same uh, i think it's a great metaphor because i think it's 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 very easy and and really really smart people and and very very successful companies uh Have a tendency to fall into this this trap, um, and and it it comes up as a sort of a fun, uh, well at least I thought it was fun um, uh, metaphor in the context of the story uh, as a uh, as the as the Ptolemy trap. You know, Ptolemy is spelled with a silent p, and and trap is spelled with a silent p. um, uh, That companies fall into where they 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 think about their business, their products as being the primary orientation as opposed to the customer, which is really what they should be focused on.
1: It was uh, Jordan Sims who talked about, let me just quote from uh, page 41. She said, they were talking about it, and she said, Ptolemy, ancient Greek, white beard, toga. He's the guy who believed the Earth was the center of the universe, that the sun, moon, stars, planets, everything revolved around the Earth. Pretty much everyone believed that until Copernicus came along and showed the sun was at the center and we just rotate around it. <laughs> and then she says, I got a second major in astronomy for fun. So talk about the struggle between big data and small data. And then we can move on to the, to the, the practical parts at the end. But that was a big part of uh, the tension that I sensed.
0: Yeah, so the, the, the other, uh, I'd say one of the other themes of the, of the story and, and what the book is trying to teach is this idea that uh, uh, data and you know, big data, data and analytics is very powerful, um, certainly has a, an important role to play in, in marketing and in understanding customers. But um, if you start with uh, an attempt to gather you know, large amounts of data and analyze that data you're very likely to fall into that trap we were just describing because you'll be asking questions of the world that are um, constrained in most cases by what you already understand about the world. And the the products that you sell already, you might be asking questions about how to improve them and what people like or dislike about them um, and trying to gather data around that. But that will Constrain your ability to really understand the causality behind why people are buying them in the first place, and that instead, you know, before you you get too far down the road of of big data, you should start with uh, generating small data, which is uh, a label um, uh, for going and talking to people directly, small numbers of people, and getting really deep into. What's happening in their lives? Um, you know, what's the context? What are they experiencing? And, and of course, most importantly, what jobs are they trying to get done? And um, how are they attempting to solve those jobs to be done? Uh, those jobs today? What's frustrating for them? What's not working? What are, you know? What else are they looking for? And that um, building a rich body of small data through that kind of an exercise. Then uh, can inform you know much better big data uh, activities.
1: Yes, and your book brought to mind a book that was on the show a couple years ago by Martin Lindstrom, called yes. Small Data. Yes, the, that's the a t- great book. The yeah, tiny exactly. clues that uncover huge trends, and I thought, oh, what a great companion piece to read after they read yours uh, or before. And he even writes sort of like it's sort of like a thriller, but it's all true. Stories that he's that he's telling, and it was just amazing. It's really one of my favorite ones. And let's go on to uh, the last part of the book where we, you know, let's 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 unpack some of these uh, tools, you know, mindset methods. I'm going to go to page 175 and ask you to tell us what is the fundamental, most important type of customer interaction. Or as you, the physics PhD would say, the atomic unit of techniques for understanding customers. What's the one most what's the linchpin?
0: Uh, in my view it's 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 a one-on-one conversation between two people and and you know it, it's often the this, the single most valuable thing you can do to get to real deep and useful insights about customers. Um, it's very efficient. You know, anybody can do it uh, uh, and learn how to do it. And um, uh, the reason I I emphasize that in the book, both in the story and in the the section at the end that's the nonfiction section, was that if you can learn how to have conversations with customers that elicit those types of insights, then um, you can learn this language, method, and mindset that uh, is required for any. You know, it gives you the foundation for any other kind of market research technique, whether it's a, a focus group or observational uh, techniques, um, and even for doing um, you know quantitative uh, surveys and and more data driven things. So I, I think it's the it's it's the most fundamental thing to learn how to do, and I think the one that everybody working in the business world should should learn.
1: So I think you're the second author I've interviewed who lives in Rhode Island, uh, which, uh, Mm. for those who aren't aware of, it's the smallest American state. Uh, It's the ocean state. The other person was Kristen Zhivago, and she wrote an excellent book called Roadmap to Revenue, and a great book. And she also is a—she and her husband have a sailboat, so I think—isn't that required by law in Rhode Island? It yeah. is yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Um,
0: I don't have one, so I'm not. Oh, not really? actually Adhering to the law, but oh uh, wow. Anyway, but nobody will find that out. I'm sure. No,
1: no. She explains exactly what to do. Wonderful book, one of my favorites, and the linchpin of the entire process that she's laid out, and she's done this for over a you know long successful career, is talking one-on-one to customers. So there's something going on in Rhode Island. <laughs> where there's a lot of good well, it's, advice. It's
0: a small state, you know, so we're all kind of crammed together. So maybe we're always talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. But it was... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll check that out. I haven't heard of that one, but that that's one of the reasons I love your, I love your podcast, is I, I find out about so many cool
1: books. Oh, thanks. Well, I'll have to open up a, a Starbucks tab somewhere. And you guys can just meet there.
0: <laughs> that sounds good. I'll hold you to that. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I want to quote from uh, page 178, uh, talk about, you know, the, the basically the fundamentals of understanding customers. Okay, this isn't uh, brain surgery, it's not rocket science. Why? It's not even rocket surgery. But that, I'm saying that, that's not in uh, David's very well-written book. But I want to quote from page 178 where you write, unlike in the case of doctors, lawyers, or accountants, there's no standard, widely accessible language to guide interactions with customers. Instead, what exists tends to be either the purview of Highly trained specialists, or at the opposite extreme, too vague and ambiguous to be useful, even more problematic, many existing approaches guide investigators to ask the wrong questions, generating vast quantities of data and analysis about things that may not even really matter and I've seen that a lot, David, so yeah. talk about what what what's needed you know to what is needed to help people ask the right questions uh, to get the right kind of insights. And, and the right level of detail,
0: yeah, so I, I thought a lot in in writing this book and um, and you know even the the process of writing it helped me work out my own thinking about the answer to that question, which is what do, what what does somebody really need to learn to be able to elicit insights to have useful customer conversations? And the way I describe it in the book is that you need to learn three things. You need a language, a method, and a mindset. And by language, I mean, um, you, you know, th- there, are, there are a lot of things you could learn about. Let, let's say your customer is a person, but all of this also applies if if it's a B2B context of your customer is, a, is an organization. But just focus on maybe uh, individuals for the moment. Um, there are a lot of things you could learn about a person. Like there's a lot of things I could learn about you, Douglas, if I was – uh, say in the coffee business, and I wanted you to come into my coffee shop more and buy more coffee. Okay, David, um,
1: those charges yeah. were dropped. Uh, <laughs> I know where I, you're no, going we're, with this. We're,
0: we're, we're, yeah, no, we're, we're, no we're, we're looking forward, Douglas. We're not, we're not looking back
1: anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. No On problem. this celebratory day, no, I appreciate that, that sentiment.
0: That's all in the past as far as I'm concerned. Um, so but there's a lot of things I could learn about you, but... And and they're probably all interesting, but only some of the things are going to help me um, create better solutions for you. You know, in the realm of of coffee and 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 you know leisure activities and so on. And so, what you need is a kind of specialized vocabulary, so that you have words that. Um, will 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 give you a way to describe what it is you're trying to understand about customers in the first place, right? And and so I think the first thing everybody needs is a is a language for uh, uh, customer uh, for understanding customers. One element of the language that um, that I'm describing in this book is this idea of a job to be done, right? That's mm-hmm. sort of a a special vocabulary term that that we're using in a in a in a in a distinct way. Um, and that's one of the things you're trying to understand about customers and there's there's a bunch of other elements to the language as well. but the first thing you need is a language. Um, and then secondly you need and you need a method right um, and and here I, I really had to make some choices about what to include and what not to include and how to how to think about this. So this isn't a book about a particular market research technique, um, but rather it's it's, it's what are the by method I mean what are the questions that you're trying to answer about customers um, and those are independent of how you answer them right so there's a difference between the questions you're trying to answer and then the way you go about answering them mm-hmm. and there're things like what jobs are people trying to get done in what are their circumstances they're in their context what um, you know what are they how that what are they hiring today um, what uh, how do they define what what quality means to them? Uh, what are the help wanted signs, right? So, what are the indicators that there are opportunities to better solve their jobs? And so uh, the, 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 that that sort of is is how I frame the method. And then the mindset is a uh, just a set of attitudes you want to go into um, this type of exercise with to maximize your chances of success.
1: But one thing you never ask a customer is what job is it you're trying to get done, right?
0: Well, that's right, because they wouldn't know what you were talking about, right? <laughs> right. So that's, that's, that's why, um, there's this moment, uh, uh, when, when Jordan, so, so one of the reasons I introduced this character of Jordan is so that, um, uh, she and the, the main character could teach each other things and, and therefore they could fill in for the reader, right? They're sort of representing the reader who's learning um, as they, as they teach each other things. And And I was
1: learning along with Jordan as Alex was sort of demonstrating.
0: Yeah. And, and, and the, um, but what I also had her do is kind of pithily summarize some of the learnings as she went through Mm -hmm. as a, as, as a way to kind of reinforce it for the, for the reader of the book and, um one of the way she summarized this is that the the questions you ask are not the questions you seek to answer, and he makes a joke that that sounds kind of like yoda um, <laughs> right. but 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 she meant by that exactly your point, which is your the the questions you're trying to answer are things like what jobs are people trying to get done those are not the questions obviously you're going to ask people you you need to ask other things um, to elicit that type of insight but you know, and I'm sure you've done you know customer interviews um, in your career, as have I'm sure many of your listeners. The the best ones are often ones that ramble around a little bit, and mm-hmm. they kind of lead in unexpected directions. And so, what I was tr- I was trying to one of the reasons I, I used a fictional format is I wanted to kind of capture that feel of how those those interviews feel. But at the same time, um, if you keep these questions in your in your head of that you're trying to answer this this method, um, it gives you a sort of um, architecture and structure in your mind that brings order to those rambling conversations and 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 guides you to to make sure that you're actually getting something useful.
1: Yes, and you can even put it start to put it on one page, which you show very specifically. Let's go. Let's talk just a little bit more about um, the the circumstances. That someone is in, because that's pivotal it relates to the um, map that you have that we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. What that helps me with is, you know, there's a needle, there's a haystack. This helps to get a lot of the hay away. Talk about the circumstances. You touched on some of it, but like the situational, I think you've got situational, demographic, identity, and agency. Uh, can, can you give us examples of, of circumstances? Like with the um, chemistry student, the pre-med student that came into the cafe.
0: Sure. So, so this idea of a circumstance, um, that's another vocabulary word in this, this specialized language. And um, I, I would view it as being just as important as the idea of jobs to be done because you know, opportunities to create a solution for a customer occur at the, uh, they're not defined just by a job by itself, but rather the intersection Of a job in a circumstance, and so what do I mean by circumstance? Well, a a circumstance is the the relevant context within which someone is trying to get a particular job done, and um, uh, we can talk about what what relevant means. But um, you know, we don't we don't try to get jobs done in in a vacuum or in some general abstract sense. But they they arise in in a particular context and, and in the case uh, that you're describing. So there's a, there's a character. uh, So, so the back to the plot, the, the, the story and the plot, um, the, the market investigators visit the various coffee shops and have conversations, you know, one-on-one conversations with people who are, you know, hiring the coffee shop, right. To get certain jobs done, Mm -hmm. to try to understand what those jobs are. And, um, it's a diverse set of people that they talk to. And one of them is a, a woman who they learn uh, a young student who is a, a pre-med um, going to a college that's near the coffee shop and comes in, you know, three times a week after school to work on her, on her homework from her chemistry class. And if you, uh, if if you're trying to understand her jobs to be done, you also want to understand her circumstances. So, what are some of the contextual factors that define where she is right then? So there, there are situational things like she's she's um, coming from a class that's not far away. Um, she is, uh, you know, by herself. Um, she's, you know, got a laptop. She wants to work on her laptop and, and get work done. So there's some factors like that. Um, there are demographic variables that define her circumstance so she's you know in college she's um uh turns out far from home uh you know she lives in a in a her family's in another state um she's in her last year of school before she wants to go to medical school right so these are uh kind of demographic factors
1: she likes the smell of coffee
0: she she loves the smell of coffee but she didn't drink it Uh, uh, but she didn't drink it, right? Which is yes. <laughs> interesting. And so, because it reminded her of her parents. Yeah, exactly. And so, so they get into that, right? So she's, they, they, they start to get into, okay, well, what, you know, what jobs are you hiring this cup of coffee to get done? And they discover a bunch of really interesting things. And they, they very much are related to and informed by the circumstances that she's in. So, so one job is to just get her work done, right? So she comes there in the, you know, after school to get work done. And, um, uh, it's a great location because she she doesn't there are people around and and so you know if she goes to the library if she goes to an empty classroom it, it feels kind of lonely but here there's there's sort of people around so she feels like she's not alone and she she purchases a cup of coffee both because she feels like it's 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 you have to pay the rent that's kind of like the rent you pay to feel good about occupying a table for a couple hours right. <laughs> even though she doesn't really drink or like coffee. And then it also reminds her of home, right? Um, mm-hmm. And She's far away from home and a little homesick. So you, you can kind of see how the jobs she has are very much interrelated with these these circumstance variables.
1: Well, the other thing, like I said, the, the circumstances is so appealing to me because it helps companies to realize what they should stop wasting their time on. And, yeah. and, and effort. Like an example would be, they had music on Saturday nights, and one of her teaching assistants was in a band, and she came to watch it, and she went big to support this teaching assistant and also because she wanted to get a good grade. <laughs> but she said she would never come back for that. And yet the company was probably thinking, oh, we should do more of this. And they're like, no, that's not... What people are coming here for, so it's just it, it, it was very interesting. Let's uh, the jobs to be done. Let me just uh, just reprise that one more time. We say uh, which can be either be a problem someone is trying to solve, or a goal someone is trying to achieve. Just can you briefly explain the idea of functional jobs, emotional jobs, and social jobs? I can understand that people might grasp functional jobs more quickly. But not so much emotional jobs and social jobs.
0: Yeah, and I think about the, these three categories of jobs as being just another layer down of the language, right? Remember, mm-hmm. the language is is aimed at, at giving you know people a, a vocabulary they can use to to know what it is they're trying to get at with, uh, with respect to understanding customers, and and it's a useful categorization scheme because mostly. People are naturally going to focus on functional jobs, which are the kind of practical things that you are trying to achieve. But very often, um, we're simultaneously uh, wanting to solve what, what we're calling emotional and social jobs. So, an emotional job is uh, like in a, like an emotional state that you – a feeling that you either want to feel or maybe it's just one that you want to avoid um, and – uh, in a social job, uh, we define it as the way that you want to either be perceived by or or interact with others mm-hmm. so if you take if you think about um, as an, a good example is like a car uh, you know if you if you ask yourself, well, why did I hire you know the last car I purchased there 's going to be some functional jobs for that always and uh, like I want to get from point A to point B, maybe I want to commute to work, maybe I have kids and I need to take them to school. Um, I got to carry stuff around, right? So there's a bunch of functional jobs, mm-hmm. but then there are emotional jobs. So maybe I want to feel like I'm a responsible parent. And so I buy like a very safe car or maybe I want to feel successful. So I buy a fancy, um, uh, you know, a BMW or something cause I, I want to feel like I've made it. I want to feel proud or successful. Maybe, maybe I, I very much value, um, the environment and I want to feel like I'm doing a good job for the planet. And so I buy a hybrid or a more fuel efficient car. Those are the kinds of emotional jobs that mm-hmm. might drive you to purchase one car versus another. Social jobs could be, you know, the way I want, maybe I want other people to think that I'm environmentally conscious or, or successful. And so I want to project that with my choice of car. And usually when we buy anything, we're not trying to solve just one narrow job, but it's a bundle of. Things that we're optimizing across, yeah, and and so um, you know when you buy a car, you're, you're you're trying to get it all, all of those things. Companies have a tendency to focus mostly on the functional, but but these other types of jobs can be uh, big drivers of, of behavior. Of course,
1: one of my favorite books is called Buyer Personas by Adele Ravella, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've heard of the the concept of buyer personas. And in that that book, there are about five insights that she advises that you try to find and it's really really helpful it's worked really well for us and you know we've we've used it to do some research and i should also add that in the story alex and uh J- jordan was that her name yep they were thrown out of the competitors location a couple of times yes. and i thought yeah i've been thrown out of places <laughs> trying to do competitive so but you're not doing it right if you're not getting thrown out of of someplace so in her adele's approach one of the five insights is about what really matters to your customers and it's almost always not what the company thinks and you come back and we we share with them how what what really matters to them they go no no normally it's like oh we want we think they're they're buying the product no no no, they're not. There's yeah. other things very important. And page 184, you write the world is full of innovations offering features and benefits their creators were excited about, but that customers ignored or rejected. The way to avoid this is to understand what really matters from your customer's perspective. Can you talk about some of the ways that help companies better understand what actually matters? to their customers instead of what they think matters to them or, or what, what matters to, uh, the, the Ptolemy people <laughs> at the company.
0: Yeah. Well, so one of the other, uh, elements of the language is this idea of, of, uh, understanding what, what quality means from the customer's perspective. So how for a particular job in a particular circumstance, um, how would they define what a high quality solution would look like? And that's a really important thing to understand about a customer, uh, so that you can, you know, engineer your solutions to uh, to match that that definition of quality. Um, you know, what 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 variable, like what kind of selection criteria do they use? I mean, cost is always a dimension, but is it about uh, ease of use is it about uh, you know every every product category or type of job is going to have some set of of evaluative criteria that people are going to use and like, like tradeoffs um, and and the, what tradeoffs are they willing to make and and you know what's more important and less important um, and so to get it I mean there are there are various techniques to get at that but the um it, it's often very useful to understand you know what what if anything are they hiring today to get those jobs done and and why and, you know what what do they like or not like like why are they choosing one thing versus another and that can give you a lot of really useful information about the implicit or explicit way that they define what what quality is mm-hmm. sometimes it could be you know essential features that have to be there like in the case of the of the young woman in the coffee shop who goes there to work. um, She's uh, uh, frustrated by the lack of power outlets, right? Which is a, you know, um, which is a, a, you know, a detail. I can certainly relate. I mean, that sort of comes from my own experience Mm because I'm always working in coffee shops. Um, But, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with coffee. It has to do with um, your ability to sit for a few hours and and work on your laptop when you're low on power. Um, And you wouldn't know that if you didn't, unless you went and kind of, um, observed that person and 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 had a conversation with them about you know exactly why they like the solution or don't.
1: Yeah, yeah. Quick definition: What is a help wanted sign? I think we just started to touch on one there.
0: Yeah. So this this um, uh, I was worried about this one and that it, it it maybe is taking the jobs metaphor just a little bit too far <laughs> too far. But the <laughs> the idea is that um, th- these are indicators that. Um, for a particular job in a particular circumstance, you know, relative to whatever solutions are available, there, there's opportunities to create something better, right? So, so, uh, And there's different types of help wanted signs, so it could be that there's literally no solution for a particular job, and therefore... You know the existence of a of an important and unsatisfied job is itself the help wanted sign. It could be that there are barriers to getting a job done. Um, there might be solutions, but for some reason there are barriers to particular people consuming them. Whether they're it's too complex or it's hard to access or it's too expensive, and um, uh, or it could be that um, this there are solutions available. There's no barriers, but uh, they don't make the right trade offs. To your point, so. Um, these are all different types of of indicators that things could be improved or that there's room for a better solution. Um, and th- this element of the language, this idea of a help-wanted sign and the, the taxonomy around that gives you a way to describe those different things that you're trying to understand uh, that are help-wanted signs.
1: So the… Um... Market investigation method. This is the last thing I want to ask you about. Is um, sure. the four questions which we've touched on largely there's four of them. What circumstance is the customer in? Be specific. What jobs is the customer trying to get done? So there's a you know the variety of layers there that need to be considered. The three is what is the customer hiring today to get those jobs done, and why? And four is what are the help wanted signs? So. I just wanted to talk about the um job specs and yeah. the uh, the market map because again we we, we can only talk uh, conceptually here because <laughs> this is an audio only sure. podcast. but this is the thing that you can actually put up on the wall. You could put it up on a whiteboard and talk about the 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 two axes of um you know the x and the y. The latitude, longitude of of jobs and circumstances. It all comes down to jobs and circumstances.
0: Yeah. So, so a market map is 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 one of the um uh kind of major frameworks that that threads throughout the book and the story and, and the the nonfiction part. And you know, I had to be pretty um choiceful about what to include and what not to include and. I chose that one because it's a, it's a really useful way to apply jobs to be done at a more strategic level. Um, it gives you a way to map out, you know, pockets of opportunity um, that are defined by, you know, the intersections of of jobs and circumstances. So um, uh, you, you could create a market, and, and there is one that's created through this market investigation for all of the different people that hire this coffee shop. And it gives you a way to visually depict that, and that uh, if you get them right, it it it's a way you can map out. Well, where am I actually playing today? What markets am I in? Where who am I competing with in different parts of this market? Where are there white spaces that I might go tomorrow? And um, and it does and it and it because those are the primary axes of the map. It does it in a way that that inherently puts the customer at the center of the whole conversation.
1: It's like you trick I, trick people yeah. into putting the customer at the center, but it it reveals clusters of where you have no business trying to compete, like uh, yeah, the the musicians on Saturday night. And I'm looking at an example of one here at the end, and it's on, you know on the left side there's a series of rows, and it says uh, we're back to Amelia, the the pre med student. Get schoolwork done, feel connected with family, connect with friends, be entertained, meet new people. And then across the top are the different all the different circumstances. And it's not an infinite number of circumstances. But like for hers, it was, you know, late afternoon or Saturday night. And Saturday night it was all X's. That is definitely not (laughs) what she wanted. But also in the story, as I recall at the final retreat, just before the big murder scene. I'm kidding. I can't, again, yeah. there's there's no murders. But this was, there was only one slide that Alex put up on the board and it was this this map, right?
0: Yeah, because it, it just has great explanatory power for, um, uh, and again, they take some work to get right. And, and the one in the story obviously was engineered to be um, a good teaching example, but uh, it it really does give you a way to visualize, okay, here's all of the places that we're playing today Either intentionally or unintentionally, right? Because this this is literally what people where people are hiring us, our, our service or our product, or in this case the coffee shop, to get jobs done today. Here's all the other people that are they're also hiring sometimes that we're actually competing with for those jobs. Now let's make a decision about: well, do we want to play in all those places? Do we want to play in in fewer places? Um, do we want to double down in some places? Um, A a product-centric view would just say, well, it doesn't matter where we're on that map as long as we sell lots of products. So we just want to sell products everywhere we possibly can. Whereas a job-centric view would uh, force you to be more intentional about, well, we could sell products in all those places, but we've only got finite resources where we want to focus and we really think we have an advantage and we should play in this place versus that.
1: Yes. Now, I know I said that was the last question, but there's one other one I want to ask. I'm sorry. And that's because I have a feeling there are probably some B2B people sitting there and they're, you know, they got their arms crossed and they're thinking, yeah, that's real nice podcast boy, but I'm a B2B company. This doesn't apply. I'm not a damn coffee chain. And I want to quote from page 187 where you say, before moving on, it's worth commenting on how this applies when the customer you're trying to understand is not a person, but an organization or B2B customer. These are by definition made up of many people, so you might assume that one-on-one conversations are not as relevant. What say you, David Scott Duncan?
0: Uh, Well, I I would say that. um, (laughs) (laughs) You did, in fact. Yes. Um,
1: There's a few distinguishing complexities here that you make real clear in the book.
0: Yeah, so there's a couple of complexities, right? Which is that um, when you're selling into a business, you you typically are selling to a a group of people or to a kind of decision-making system. It may not just be to one particular contact. I mean, it might be to one contact in the the business, but you might have to be understanding the jobs of more than one person because there's some, say, selection committee for your product um, and it's not just one person. And then the other complexity is that there's, there's there's two different types of jobs that any person in a B2B customer will have that you have to take into account. There's there's what I would call role-based jobs. So these are, are jobs that that person has on behalf of the organization because of their role in it. So what mm-hmm. do I mean by that? Well, if, if you're – let's say you're selling to a CFO, um, what are some of the jobs that a CFO has – For the organization, because they're a CFO, well, they have to do things like, you know, make sure the company doesn't run out of cash and make sure we're not taking, um, you know, we're managing risk appropriately or, you know, create, you know, financial forecasts for for the market or for internally. Like there's, those are role-based jobs that the CFO has that maybe the, you know, the CEO or, or some other person working in the organization does not have. Um, And so you have to understand those. If the CFO is your is your B two B customer contact, but then that person will also have individual jobs that relate to their career. So, you know, take a CEO. A CEO might have role based jobs like, you know, build a strong leadership team, or um, you know, communicate my vision to the market. Those are those are role based jobs. But that that CEO also also might have personal jobs like, um, you know, build a legacy for myself or you know, set myself up for my next CEO role that's going to be even bigger and better or, or whatever they might be. Or,
1: or affirm the decision the board had to hire him. Yeah,
0: or absolutely. Right. Or, yeah. Or, um, uh, you know, manage my work-life balance. Uh, although most CEOs I met are not as worried about that. Um, but, but I mean, that's, <laughs> but that's, but that's a work-related job that we all have. Right. Um, and so you, 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 the B2B application still works, but it's it's more complex because there's more stakeholders and then there's there's more types of jobs you have to worry about.
1: Right, but it doesn't mean it just doesn't work. I mean, as I was reading through it, I was just thinking of B2B things throughout. Um, so it, it's uh, it, it works well for B2B and you have a section in here that explains the other uh, complexities that make it uh, successful. And also one other thing I want to mention that, um, I know I was busted on Rob Butler, <laughs> the marketing guy, but he also played a very important role in the story in that he was asking the questions that I think a lot of companies would ask. Uh, he was the doubting Thomas that was really quite helpful for Alex to make his uh, his point. So I see what you did there. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: I'd say... If if there's a customer that you're trying to help, or even even just a person you're trying to help, right? Uh, because I, I think um, everybody has customers in their role, you know, people that they're trying to help, you know, solve problems and achieve goals. So if there's a customer you're trying to help, your your number one priority should be understanding the jobs those that customer is trying to get done in their lives, and and how their circumstances influence that, and that the best way to go do that is is to go talk to them.
1: So when I ask you what is one thing a listener could do today to put in action an idea from your book, would would it possibly be go talk to your customers?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That absolutely right. Go go have a conversation with with a customer, a potential customer, a, a stakeholder you're trying to help. You know, keep it open ended, um, and and get at their their problems and goals and and
1: uh, stop talking uh, about you your product.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. That's
1: that's right. Well, looking back, uh, what books have most inspired your working career?
0: Uh, you know, I was inspired by a couple books by Clay Christensen. Um, you know, I read The Innovator's Dilemma a long time ago when I first uh, uh, was uh, getting involved at InnoSight, which is the company he co-founded and where I've worked for the last, you know, 16 years. Um, he also wrote a wonderful book called How Will You Measure Your Life um, that you know, applies a lot of these same frameworks, including jobs to be done, to thinking about, uh, what it means to live a good life and and how to design a good life which i i really loved i i found this book the five dysfunctions of a team influential in the sense that um uh i i loved just the storytelling aspect of that uh-huh. um, and uh you know there's a handful of other you know business books that i turn to again and again just for just on special topics
1: oh interesting yes yeah, this uh the five dysfunctions has been mentioned by a number of authors on the show so are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or heard of that you're looking forward to reading or have them come out?
0: Uh, so, I have um, one called Talent, um, which is by Tyler Cowen. Uh, he's this uh, – you know, he must be a genius. He's like this polymath uh, econo- economics professor who runs this blog uh, called Marginal Revolution – that um, he, he posts links and articles on every day that uh, he's just this prolific thinker. And, and, and he, he, he's, he writes, a, comes out with a new book, it seems like, every year. Mm. And this is his, I haven't read it yet, but it's, it's supposed to be a really um, innovative, creative look at how you think about finding great talent and nurturing talent. Um,
1: Very timely, yeah. Fun. I see it's talent, how yeah. to identify energizers, creatives, and winners around the world. Yeah. Very so timely. that's one.
0: Um and then on the fiction front, um, I don't know if you've ever read uh there's this guy, George Saunders, who's an American uh author who writes uh shorts these just brilliant short stories. He's about to come out with his next collection in October, uh, which I'm looking forward to.
1: Oh, good. Well, let me ask you one other question, if if not this book, that somebody wanted to learn more about the jobs to be done. Is there uh, one book that you would recommend that they start with? Um, And I should also add, I'm going to try and find that milkshake video to include on your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com.
0: Yeah, so the other book um, uh, that, uh, you know, I think is is a nice overview of the idea of jobs is a book called Competing Against Luck, which... Um Clay and, and a couple of other folks and myself wrote back in twenty sixteen. Okay. Um and it's more about the concept at, at a more general level. It's less about how to apply it. Um but it has a bunch of um you know, it it's a Clay Christensen book and he Clay was such a wonderful storyteller um that I think this the there's a lot of great stories in it. Um uh and it's it's a relatively uh easy read, I think. So
1: Well, and it was a Wall Street Journal bestseller.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well, I think anything anything Clay would write would yeah that far.
1: yeah, <laughs> well, I was sorry to see he passed away, and he was a a great person as well.
0: yeah, he really was yeah, he was a great human being.
1: So at marketingbookpodcast.com we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, uh, your site, which is marketdetective.com and your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account, and uh, and that video, if I can find it. And now a word to you, dear listener, I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to David and congratulate him on this book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, he's a fellow listener just like you. Uh, send him a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, or go to his website, but... Um, yeah, let, thank him for being a guest because uh, let's hope this isn't his last book and uh, maybe he'll come back to to see us. Guests on the show have told me how much they really enjoy hearing from marketing book podcast listeners and not just because marketing book podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the marketing book podcast on your favorite podcast app, like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the website link. Final quote, page 208. Becoming proficient in the art of the market detective may seem like a daunting task, particularly if you're just getting started. There's a whole new language to remember, a new method and toolkit to master, and mindsets to adopt that come more naturally for some than others, and all while navigating the unpredictability of real live encounters with customers. (laughs) Rest assured that anyone who invests the time and effort can be successful, and it is well worth it. I can attest to this from my own experience. As I progressed from rarely encountering customers in the wild... To spending thousands of hours engaged in fascinating, inspiring, and often humbling conversations with them, this work has taken me around the world and allowed me to meet and learn from an extraordinarily diverse group of people. And then finally, you write in all—you describe several of them—in all of these cases. And in many others, my goal was to understand the lives of customers deeply enough that others could use this knowledge to find ways to make their lives better. It is enormously gratifying when this is the result. If I can learn to do this, you can too. Success ultimately comes not from memorizing specific techniques, but from practicing a small set of principles, the principles I've described in this book. I wish you luck in mastering them and in using them to crack whatever market mysteries you encounter in your career and life. The book is The Secret Lives of Customers, a detective story about solving the mystery of customer behavior. The author is David Scott Duncan. David, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for having me,
1: Douglas. I really enjoyed it, and uh, happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some marketing book podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.